literally. But no media, no mainstream media is going to touch this story because it's a must-be. It's so important to them, obviously. Isn't it odd that all the old sci-fi movies they showed you, like Blade Runner, had it raining all the time? You never saw the sky. Was that part of the predictive programming? And have we adapted so well to these movies that no one really seems to notice or even care? What's happened to the people? Remember what Skinner said about the environment to change people. You just simply change something in their environment and they adapt to it. That's happening. Back with more after these messages. Months ago, I read a story about a young blonde-haired boy in England that uh, they were saying was a terrorist to try to get home to us that anyone can be a terrorist, you see. Then it was followed by articles from MI5 and different intelligence agencies saying that, uh, that, that, that the Islamist extremists had changed their, the way they look, becoming more westernized. And this is all to get us used to the fact that, you see, we're all potential terrorists. That's what the whole information age is about, is observing all of us as we go through the big changes, the big planned changes to the brave new world. And most folk will adapt. In fact, most folk in about five years will forget what, you know, who we're fighting anyway. It, it doesn't really matter to them. And they'll adapt to the changes and, and be monitored and watched and fingerprinted and so on. They already are, a lot of them. And those folk are gone. They're the casualties. They're gone. They were never really conscious to begin with. Here's a report from The Guardian. And it's from Thursday, the August 21st. It says, MI5 report challenges views on terrorism in Britain. And then it goes on to say, and it shows you a little bit of the document, a photograph of this uh, restricted document. And at the top of it, it says, Behavioral Science Unit Operational Briefing. This is for MI5. They have their own behavioral science unit. Remember the Skinnerian type of psychology? And beneath it says, MI5 has concluded that there is no easy way to identify those who become involved in terrorism in Britain, according to a classified internal research document on radicalization seen by The Guardian. The sophisticated analysis based on hundreds of case studies by the security service says, there's no single pathway to violent extremism. They concluded that it is not possible to draw up a typical profile of the British terrorist, as most are demographically unremarkable and simply reflect the communities in which they live. The restricted MI5 report takes apart many of the common stereotypes about those involved in British terrorism. They're mostly, mostly British nationals, not illegal immigrants, and far from being religious novices, nor, the analysis says, are they mad or bad. Those over 30 are just as likely to have a wife and children as to be loners with no ties, the research shows. The security service also plays down the importance of radical extremists to clerics, saying their influence in radicalizing British terrorists has moved into the background in recent years. The research carried out by MI5's Behavioral Science Unit 
is based on in-depth case studies on several hundred individuals known to be involved in or closely associated with violent extremist activity, ranging from fundraising to planning suicide bombings in Britain. The main findings include the majority are British nationals and the remainder, with a few exceptions, are here legally. Around half were born in the UK, with others migrating here later in life. Some of these fled traumatic experiences and oppressive regimes and claimed UK asylum. And I've got it there in the UK now, eh? But more came to Britain to study or for family or economic reasons and became radicalised many years after arriving. Far from being religious zealots, a large number of those involved in terrorism do not practice their faith regularly. Many lack religious literacy and could actually be regarded as religious novices. Very few have been brought up in strongly religious households and there is a higher than average production or proportion of converts. Some are involved in drug taking, drinking alcohol and visiting prostitutes. MI5 says there is evidence that a well-established religious identity actually protects against violent radicalization. I wonder what religion they're talking about. The mad and bad theory to explain why people turn to terrorism does not stand up with no more evidence of mental illness or pathological personality traits found amongst British terrorists than is found in the general population. So in other words, you see, the general population are all suspect. This is what this whole article is getting at here. British-based terrorists are as ethnically diverse as the UK Muslim population with individuals from Pakistan, Middle Eastern and Caucasian backgrounds. MI5 says assumptions cannot be made about suspects based on skin colour, ethnic heritage or nationality. Most UK terrorists are male, but women also play an important role. Sometimes they are aware of their husbands, brothers or sons' activities, but do not object or try to stop them. While the majority are in their early to mid-twenties, when they become radicalised, a small but not insignificant minority first become involved in violent extremism at over the age of 30. Far from being lone individuals with no ties, the majority of those over 30 have steady relationships and most have children. MI5 says this challenges the idea that terrorists are young men driven by sexual frustration and lured to martyrdom by the promise of beautiful virgins waiting for them in paradise. It's wrong to assume that someone with a wife and and children is less likely to commit a crime or act of terrorism. Those involved in British terrorism are not unintelligent or gullible, and nor are they more likely to be well-educated. Their educational achievement ranges from total lack of qualifications to degree-level education. However, they are almost all employed in low-grade jobs. The researchers conclude that the results of their work challenge many of the stereotypes that are here are held about who becomes a terrorist and why. Crucially, the research has revealed that those who become terrorists are a diverse collection of individuals fitting no single demographic profile, nor do they all follow a typical pathway to violent extremism. The security service believes that terrorist groups operating in Britain today are different in many important respects from the Islamic extremists, activity in other parts of the world and from historical terrorist movements such as the IRA or the Red Army Faction. The UK restricted MI5 operational briefing note circulated within the security services in June warns that unless they understand the varied backgrounds of those drawn to terrorism in Britain, the security services will fail to counter their activities in the short term 
and failed to prevent vi- vi- uh, violent radicalization continuing in the long term. It also concludes that the research results have important lessons for the government's program to tackle the spread of violent extremism. And, and it goes on and on and on. But basically what they're saying, as I say through this whole article, is that everyone is obviously a potential suspect. You might just suddenly become a terrorist tomorrow morning when you wake up and you find, find that there's no sausage and eggs left or something like that and go nuts and bananas. So you'll have to be watched critically. And no doubt this a report here, this report will be followed up by another demand for more and more money for cameras or for more radical intrusion into people's homes. That's what will come out of this. I've no doubt about that at all. Because they always put up these types of articles in a series building on the last one and the last one and the last one. That's how it works. So, here they are in a roll. Now, last week I also mentioned about the face profiling that's going on. Uh, supposedly, it's funded by the Department of Defense in the United States. Supposedly, it's looked for people with autism. Now, why would the Defense Department care about autistic children? But I've no doubt some of their particular viruses happen to get into the injections that caused it in the first place. But here's an article here about white faces. And this is from the Star, the Toronto Star, I guess, star.com, from August the 20th, 2008, by the health reporter. Next time you're getting your face scraped along the boards by the other team's enforcer, try and take a peek at his sneering mug. Chances are it's wider than yours, according to a new Brock University study that equates the width of a hockey player's face with his or her aggressive tendencies. See his eugenics. I told you they're all out in force now. Playing hockey, you can almost tell just by looking at them that this person might be more aggressive than another person, says Justin Carr, a graduate student and the lead study author. The study appears today in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society. Now, the Royal Society is a Masonic society set up in about the 1500s, and its purpose was to really go into sciences in a deep way but keep them fairly secret from the public. I think Francis Bacon even joined, but the condition was you had to put away your wife. You were not allowed to be married. So he put a sum of money aside and put his wife to the side and his children to join. That, that, was, a, that was mandatory in those days. And this thing is still going today, the same Royal Society. Study co-author Cheryl, uh, Cheryl McCormick a psychology professor says recent studies show men's faces are broader relative to their height of their heads than most of women. No kidding. She's, she's, that's what you go to university for, right? You see that there's differences. Specifically, the measurement compared with the width of a face from cheekbone to cheekbone with the height of the face from the upper lip to the eyebrows. McCormick says the width ratio appeared to be independent of other bodily features like musculature or bone size. This is right out of the old Nazi World War II stuff, and here they are going at it here. This width-to-height sex difference, however, only emerged at puberty, leading researchers to suspect that it came as a result of the testosterone increase in boys' experience in their teenage years. The Brock team theorized that the more aggression-inducing testosterone a youth possessed, the broader his face would grow. These guys get paid grants for doing this stuff. 
really do. Jay Leno would be in trouble, wouldn't he? We wanted to see the extent to which these individuals' differences in the face would actually be correlated with aggressive behavior, McCormick says. At first, the Brock team looked at the behavior of students playing a computer game designed to measure hostility. We found that in men, the facial metric that we used was correlated with how aggressive men were on this computer test, McCormick says. There was no such relationship in women. It was only in men. So men are the bad guys, you see. Uh, it's his car who won a hockey scholarship to a U.S. college and is an assistant coach of the varsity team next looked at shinny players. I'll be back with more of these shinny players after this break. Hi, I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Going through some of the nonsense that are put out there today, they no doubt will eventually lead into security one way or another, because the, the eugenicists who now call themselves bioethicists, or bioethicists, I should say, bioethics committees, uh, they're all into this facial recognition stuff that they've rehashed from their old World War II days, and it's back out in full force as they try to predict what we're all going to do by the shape of her faces and the length of her hands and all the rest of it. And they get paid for this. These professors and so on get paid to do all these Mickey Mouse tests. And no doubt if you give another bunch on the other side of the world the same test to do, they come out a whole bunch of different stories. But this is how they give you your ideas and your opinions. So now everyone's going to be looking at people with broad faces, wondering just how violent they are. And the same with the children. Sure, I get my children on tranquilizers because John is getting a white face. This will all tie into this because they want a drugged population. They even want to go further and go into the, to the genes themselves at conception and remove those that they claim will be inferior or give you criminal tendencies. This is all part of this stuff. It's amazing to see the whole old pre and, and the pre-Nazi era come right back in full force in our lifetime, under different names. And to continue with a part of this article here, because it's too lengthy and nonsensical, it says, we think that testosterone levels around puberty might be partly responsible for shaping the facial width-to-height ratio, he says. Not only would it shape the facial width-to-height ratio, but it might shape their brains to be more aggressive. So it shapes their, that's very technical, eh, for a professor. It might shape their brain to be more aggressive. And they're getting paid for this stuff. To do these surveys and no doubt stigmatize an awful lot of young men who happen to have wider faces than others. Quite something, isn't it? And most folk lap this stuff up because they're taught that the experts must be, must be right and, uh, and they wouldn't lie to you. Now we'll go to the phones now and we've got Anthony in Ireland. Are you there, Anthony? <laughs> Hello. Hi, How are you doing? Um, great. I stayed up till 25 past one over here to, to talk to you. Uh-huh. Um, I always listen to your your shows on your mm-hmm. website, and uh, I, I got your three books, which are great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd like to ask you two questions, if possible. Yeah. The first one is about uh, satirical comedy, not necessarily sitcoms, but, you know, like The Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. And um, what 
effect does it have on people psychologically? Does it have any positive effects for the New World Order because they put on satirical shows like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report on, on the air which uh, cover torture, spying, and administration? Yes. Oh, there's no doubt. Um, I think Terry Gulliam did most of the writing for The Life of Brian, and he's also done the movie Brazil and a few other ones. And all these topics are on theme with this whole new world order idea. And he, he takes stuff from the past and he'll satirize it. But he also will bring it up to, to the present stage of today, showing you that the same techniques are used down through the ages in totalitarian-type regimes. And he also shows you the, the public. See, it's quite interesting, even in the life of Brian, he showed you that the masses want someone to do everything for them. I think that was one of the points he put in there. They didn't want to hear the message that they had to do something for themselves. And so there were some poignant uh, little points that they made, but definitely with the ridiculing of of a, a Jesus-type deity under the guise of Brian, it didn't do them any favors uh, otherwise either. So it, it goes both ways. In comedy, they can put an awful lot more out than they can put in, out anywhere else. The other movie was The Meaning of Life. And in there, uh, they wrote at the very beginning of the movie that people would come to your homes to take your liver, like a donor. And again, it's a comedy. And they come for this man's uh, liver. They cut it out because he was down as a, dover, a donor. And then they work on the wife trying to get her to agree. And she said no. And then they give her a big song about how insignificant she is in the shape of things in the massive universe. And at the end of, the, end of, the end of it all, he says, do you feel so big now? She says, no, you feel pretty small. He says, yeah, can we have your liver? She says, okay. They're showing you the techniques that are used in satire, um, which, but they're actually used through indoctrination purposes and step-by-step step in reality because the public, unfortunately, will eventually agree to have anything done to them if the right process is used on them and the right type of indoctrination is put upon them. And especially when they've been taught that they're insignificant, that each of you is insignificant, what can I do about this, these, big, these big organizations or this big new world order? Uh, they were trying to get that point across as well. You cannot look for heroes. You've got to do it yourself. Everyone is a hero for this, for this uh, war. Be honest with you. So, um, you know, people who are awake and they're thinking of making a, a satire, a short satire video on global warming to expose it in a amusing way for the yes. people who are still asleep. Do you think it could actually backfire on them? Um, or could, could, it, could it actually have a positive effect as It well? could have a positive effect. In fact, uh, and, and, um, and Wired, uh, not Wired, Spiked magazine, it's called Spiked magazine, from, I think, Thursday, the 21st of August, uh, they do a satire on water neutrality and breathing. How to breathe properly so you can use less carbon dioxide. So that, that does work. That does work. Mm-hmm. It's done the right way. Maybe they'll put a meter on our neck and you'll have to put money in to continue yeah, breathing. Hold on and, and we'll come back after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
time, folks. I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Are you still there, Anthony? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Um, my second question was about um, a solution I've, I've come across from Edward G. Griffin, the author of The Preacher from Jekyll Island about the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Um, he was saying that become government, he wants the, the people who are awake to flood the elections and actually become government. And if you take it in Europe, um, it's only a couple of thousand of people if you add up all the parliaments together. So it's probably impossible to wake up six billion, but if you woke up a, or the millions who are awake, if they all run for parliament at the same time, they could control the government. Um, do you see any pitfalls in, in that solution? See, well, we're not dealing with fools at the top. The great thing about um, European governments, and Britain especially, who are masters of this, is that they put on a facade of, of being clumsy and, and um, comical to the public through movies and sitcoms and so on. And, but the opposite is true. These characters hire the best, and they go through all kinds of scenarios, like war games, and how the public would react to different scenarios and then what, how they would handle it and so on, right down to its, its most um, infinite detail. So I'm sure that they've got all that figured out. The thing is, too, that they know that they've got the public so socialized today out of the loop of uh, being involved in what's happening in their life uh, that they know they can ram this whole order upon us. And they've almost trained most of the people that government is separate from the people and that the purpose of government and experts is just to rule you uh, autonomously. That's what they've trained the public to think. And most folk really believe it. They, they don't believe that they, they have any say. They don't really care about it, in fact, most people. And um, they've been put right out of the loop. Before they gave the public's democracy, uh, and, and talking about the, the possibility of having to give them democracy, the elite had meetings, and they published their, their findings in it. And they realized that um, democracy would be good it would stop revolutions every four or five years because people would live in hope they could vote the, the last bunch out and get a new bunch in. But, but the, by the same token, democracy was too slow and cumbersome for them to rule the public because they've got big plans at the top and they definitely have uh, business plans, long-term business plans with dates and times of completion. And Margaret Thatcher said that. She says, you know, democracy... It's too cumbersome. I belong to a parallel government, she said, which is the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And she says, we all are, are ex-presidents and prime ministers and top uh, bureaucratic officials. We can get things done behind the scene. That's backed up by Carol Quigley's tragedy in Hope. He says, the men, the men who go behind the scene working for the big foundations and organizations wield the true power, but they get no acclaim from the public who are unaware of their existence. The politicians are just front men. So the, the, this is such an old technique that have been there for a long time. It would be, it'd be a hard thing to take government um, by any means possible. And even if you did, you'd have chaos within it from all the competing uh, factions involved. But, but I know what you're saying. Um, see, the root of this thing isn't just the government itself. It, it's the whole system of money and commerce and economics. And it's tied up completely with that. And until we find another way of living, which is we can't go back, uh, that won't happen. We can't go the way that the leader are taking us because it's towards our extinction. So if they find a different way to go off at a tangent somehow, 
and find a way of living um, where we don't have this, this dog-eat-dog society where the rich psychopath uh, gets to the top and rules and the rest of us are left feeding on the morsels at the bottom. There's an awful lot that has to be thought through here. And the public themselves who've been trained for so long to admire these people at the top, to get up there by any means possible, it'd be hard for them to envisage any other system but, but the one that they're born into, you see. How many people are really willing to take a chance into the unknown and go off in a different direction, I wonder. Yeah, I couldn't imagine many doing that. But, um, you know, like, I thought most people are probably going to be ruled because they feel like that. But um, yeah. it'd be better to be ruled by people who are aware of the agenda and who have a, a conscience, you know, and actually care about, about um, giving them freedom rather than the psychopaths. Um, yes, yeah. And the psychopaths truly are a force across the world, though. They've been setting this up for such a long, long time, this system they're bringing in. And they're not even pretending to be nice anymore. They used to pretend that they had to respond to public complaints. Now it's just, we don't even have that sham anymore. Yeah, I, I hear people talking all the time who, who are awake, and they're, they're just, um, they don't want to do anything. No. except go on the internet and the reason they give is that they're going to wait until it gets really bad you know until they come to take their family or something and then then they'll do something yeah. uh, to, to stop it but what the way i think is that we're under attack from every single direction our food is poisoned we're being poisoned in the air we're, yeah. we're already under major attack we are uh, we are trying to find something that will work yeah, well, it truly would take enough people even to start with their children. That's a common denominator uh, that gets to everyone and, and stop getting them injected, um, demanding uh, the right to know what kind of food you're eating and have a say in how, it, how it's, it's grown, what type it is and all the rest of it. But you have to, we have to start taking our, our rights back one by one. And it is for the children because most of us are going to die off pretty early. We've all been contaminated with so many shots and all the rest of it. Um, so it's to keep our own species going. These guys at the top plan to eliminate us over a course of 20 years while they bring in a new, um, specifically, a genetic-made type of human, post-human. Uh, so um, we have to fight to, re to retain ourselves. We're the only ones left now with sentience of any kind. The next type of human they create will be a perfect slave with no ability to appreciate love, hate, or do anything else. Yeah. So we, we yeah. have the potential to do everything. Yeah. Yeah, like your people are probably love to have their child modified, you know, they get their blue eyes and all the other things that they're going to do right. with them. And they'd love to get the microchips so they know where they are and everything. Yeah, they think it's uh, wonderful, most of them. Yeah. And they don't realize it's all... Thank, thanks a million for... Yeah, well, thanks for calling. Right. People don't realize that you're, we're fighting for our very souls here, our sentience, our ability to think. And with thinking comes responsibility and worry too, sometimes, and happiness and pleasure and pain. That's the way it goes. And that's being a complete human. And if that's worth fighting for, then so be it. But to just lie and go quietly uh, with a whimper, not with a bang, uh, that's the coward's way out. And those people have already said, in their words, that life is worth nothing and neither is their own if they want to go out with a whimper to regain their own sovereignty and be proud of it for the first time. Just before going to the other two callers there, 
there's um, oh, this is more than two now, but anyway, this is from that um, spiked magazine. This little spoof they've done on on breathing here. It says a new campaign has been launched to encourage people to think before you breathe. Activists want us to breathe less because it sucks in oxygen and expels carbon dioxide. A report titled "Hold Your Breath: How Breathing Less Can Boost Biodiversity" implores healthy men and women over the age of 18 to try to limit themselves to six breaths per minute instead of the normal 12 to 20. You can even work out your breath footprint on a new online eco-breathalyzer where you input personal info, age, profession, level of physical exercise, and sexual exertion, and it tells you how many cubic meters of carbon dioxide you're spouting each year. And that's their way of satirizing this, this farce of, of uh, biodiversity and save the world and carbon dioxide and all the rest of it. That's what we should be doing, more and more of that. They show them how crazy and stupid it all is, and that we know it's crazy and stupid, and we know there's another agenda at work behind it. Now we'll, we'll go to Tom in Massachusetts. Are you there, Tom? Hello, Tom. Ellen. Yes. Uh, question for you. So far as the, um, the progression of things goes, uh, was there a particular point you feel or from your research that you found uh, over probably the last maybe 100, 200, 500 years where um, they realized that there was a potential for changing people to the point of total dominance or control by the elite where they could engage in um, genetic engineering? In other words, was this something that just got dropped in everybody's lap? It's like, oh, we've suddenly discovered that we can we can make people more docile and um, and subservient to us if we work with them with medicine and drugs, mm-hmm. um, or is it something that has actually been known about or planned, and yet is going according to a certain timetable according to the to the age? What do you mm-hmm. think? Well, we know that in ancient times, the the pharaohs, for instance, or those that ruled Egypt, uh, understood diet perfectly. They knew what to feed slaves to keep them docile but healthy enough to work. Um, this was followed down through the ages. In fact, the, the, the Egyptians at one point even tried getting the mothers of slaves to strap uh, a sort of board on their heads, the foreheads of the children, to make them kind of flat-headed, huh. which altered their personality, made them very, very docile, but it made them too docile and stupid, and so they threw, they threw that out the window. Um, we find in India... Uh, they had the same techniques to do with diets. It wasn't. A, if they could restrict their, even the vegetarian diet to certain few vegetables and so on, they could get the predictable outcome of the person not too bright, but bright enough to take orders and do their work. And then that was followed up with um, Malthus, Thomas Malthus, with his essay on uh, population uh, to do with the same thing. He advised the British colonies how to what to feed their slaves what kind of food to feed the slaves, but to keep them lethargic enough so they couldn't walk off to another plantation. Um, even for the ones who were so-called freed slaves, they had no energy to walk off, and they'd stay around the plantation and work there and be docile. This is, these are old sciences that have always been known, and that's why they went for food again this time. But, of course, with the use of um, alchemy, as like they used to call it from the 1500s onwards, they were right into using pharmaceuticals, what are now called pharmaceuticals, to alter the brain chemistry of the slave race. And that's why Huxley and others 
promoted uh, worldwide use on the general public of drugs, drugging the public to make them docile. But they also knew um, that through science and through understanding nature, they'd get to the point where they could literally um, find uh, uh, the very, very genes which makes you, you, an individual you, and alter them. And that's why they went full steam ahead from the beginning of the 1900s into genetic research. And they knew about this stuff long before Watson came along with his double helix and it was taught in medicine up until the 70s that they'd find the genes one day. And then you read the report by Rutherford, the greatest mathematician that Britain ever had, and in his own biography in about 1915, he tells you that he was employed full-time working on genetic research. Now, what would you need a mathematician for if you could not see or find the genes? They obviously had them mapped out then. And that's how things are really done in the real world. We, we are given a bottom level of science and knowledge and even what they're up to, and they have stuff at the top that they've probably held on to for 100 or more, maybe even 200 years. That's how it's presented to us. So we're always kept thinking in the past, oh, they can't do that yet. They're not that advanced. That's why it works, and that's why they can do it, and they do do it. There's no inoculation they gave you from the very beginning that they did not know what the effects would be on the physical body, whether it's autism or autoimmune problems or whatever else. You cannot inject into the human body foreign DNA from animals right into the bloodstream without it having an effect. And we know from even the, 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 the video that the CBC showed in Canada uh, of Dr. Salk talking, he said, oh, yes, we knew there was over 100 viruses in every polio vaccine, and these viruses were live, and some of them caused cancer, like, like the Simeon 40 virus. Its only purpose was to create cancer. Hmm. So they knew what they were up to from the beginning. It's, it's funny. I just get the distinct feeling. It's almost like, um, you know, like you can't put your finger on it type thing, uh, feeling where everything is timed. In other words, everything is moving ahead according to the agenda that they have prepared so that nothing will uh, deter it and uh, nothing will stop it. This is like some kind of a steamroller, it seems, where when they want things to come into play, it comes yeah. into play at that particular time. That's and, right. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's why, like you said a while ago, you better find a big hole because, <laughs> I mean, if they're successful, uh, yeah. the sentient ones are going to have to dig pretty deep to get away from this. Oh, yeah. If it came out to the public, what's even, even a fraction of what's been done deliberately to them with thousands of, of, of people involved, scientists, uh, bureaucrats, uh, military personnel, and politicians and so on, uh, big foundation um, owners, you have no option but to go after them. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, I'll let somebody else have a turn, but it was nice talking to you again, Alan. Thanks for calling. We'll see ya. Bye now. Now we've got Dale from New Delhi. Are you there, Dale? Uh, yes, yes. Hello, Alan. Can you hear me? Yes, I got you. Uh, I would ordinarily be Dale from Denmark, but uh, I'm going to be here in Delhi for uh, a few weeks okay. and uh, could not resist calling in anymore. I'm going to yeah. ask uh, two two very quick questions, Alan, and then I'd like to hang up and uh, hear your answer. Mm -hmm. The first question uh, has to do with Carol Quigley mm -hmm. and uh, Tragedy and Hope. Uh, and I'm asking you why it is this man can write this 
tomb of a book, some 1,090 pages. Mm-hmm. And the last two words of the book are capitalized, and they are the words inclusive diversity. Mm-hmm. And the context of the sentence, just to, to refresh you, is um, um, he, he starts out saying that uh, uh, some things we clearly do not know yet, including the most important of all, which is how to bring up children to form them in mature, into mature, responsible adults. But on the whole, we do know now, as we have already shown, that we can avoid continuing uh, the horrors of 1914 to 1915, and on that basis alone, we may be optimistic over our ability to go back to, our, to the tradition of our Western society and to resume its development along its old patterns of inclusive diversity. And the words inclusive diversity are capitalized, and, and I've been pondering this, and I, and I just can't, I just can't uh, uh, wrestle it into some coherence. I'd like you to, uh, if you have some, some insight into what he might have been uh, speaking to, I'd really appreciate it. That's the first question. And the second question is, do you have any, uh, any, any thought points about how uh, we can conceptualize uh, uh, the family in, 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 in sort of the context of this brave new world uh, that I, uh, I've been following your work for quite some time? So if you have any ideas of how we can conceptualize family in, in the context of, say, someone like myself who is... Yeah, the, the patriarch of the family and uh, okay. you're struggling to sort of move I'll, out I'll the answer that when I come back from this break thank, thank, thank you Alan. Hi folks I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix and just to try and answer the last caller which it, it's not so easy but it comes to Quigley because Quigley wasn't just um, a mentor of Bill Clinton he, he wasn't just a professor at Georgetown University. He was also an advisor to the State Department and the top diplomatic corps of the United States. He was um, the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is just the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. So what he was talking about there was the old idea they had when they sold the Bill of Goods through the United Nations to the world, that everyone could come in into this global structure and be inclusive and re- retain their sovereignty at the same time, their diversity, if you like, at the same time. That's what he was referring to when he said that. Now, as I say, he was the historian of for the Council on Foreign Relations at the it was at the, um, I think it was the Harold Pratt building uh, in New York City and had access to their files. He knew the global agenda. He was all for that global agenda. But he was going by what they used to call the inclusiveness of all countries who would be part of a system but still retain their their sovereignty, which is a misnomer. He knew himself that it could not happen. You're either a global st- structure or you're sovereign. It's one or the other, and that's the problem. And he claimed that World War One was brought about by by um, the countries all competing with each other. Competition has to stop in this new inclusive system that they were setting up then. That's where free trade comes in. It's not free at all. It's selective trade only. So they stop the feuding and the fighting by selecting which big moguls they're going to allow to, to have, use free trade. That, that's really what it is. Where it comes with the family, um, the family now has been so much under attack of, uh, steadily 
since really the end of World War II onwards that it doesn't stand much of a chance. Indoctrination to male and female, and perhaps more in the, in the feminist agenda, has done so much damage that I, it's, it's almost irreparable. It, it would take literally a global catastrophe to make us all work together for survival once again. But as long as the artificial system exists, um, the radicalization of the genders will go on and they'll be each other's throats until it's all over. That's the unfortunate part about it. Women, the wealthy women, uh, say quite openly that men are just sperm donors. That's all they are to them. They don't need them. And they are being used to push for all the genetic modification to create the perfect offspring, etc. They go shopping, literally shopping for sperm. So they said 60 years ago in their books they would aim most of the propaganda at the female. It has worked. Unfortunately, the wealthier ones are bringing about what will be their own demise. They won't need them in the future. They won't need men either or women with the artificial wombs because we are going into the Huxley Brave New World where silicone wombs will be used. So I hope that tries to tries to answer it. Plus ID, when you take the two letters, ID is a big word up in the, the big uh, ranks at the top. It's, um, it's, it's ideal design or intelligent design because he knew what they were working towards and he had no objections about creating a new type of human and that the old type were basically obsolete too. Uh, now we'll go to Kyle in Connecticut. Are you there, Kyle? John. Yes. You know, it seems like they're within the last 10 yards of scoring a touchdown, and they're all excited they're going to get to see this ideal design. Yeah. Right and, uh, you know, how, how much further can they dehumanize us? As much as we let them. <laughs> as much as we let them. That's basically it. But thanks for calling. That's the end of the show now. And from Hamish myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods. Go with you.